Well, good to be with you again tonight. Good to uh, see you. Welcome or welcome back. Uh, maybe if you turn one last time to Zechariah. Uh, I think it's page 952 of the, uh, the church Bibles here. Page 952, second last book of the Old Testament. And tonight we're reading chapters 5 and 6. Zechariah chapters 5 and 6. Zechariah's visions from God continue and he's uh, still accompanied by an angel who's uh, giving him clues about the strange things that he's seeing Uh, and we join them again uh, reading from chapter 5 verse 1. I looked again and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, the angel, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. And he said to me, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up and see what this is that is appearing. I asked, what is it? He replied, it is a measuring basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Then I looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my lord? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north country, the one with the white horses towards the west, and the one with the dappled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. The word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. 
and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be a harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. We finish our reading uh, there. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. Let's uh, pray just very briefly uh, before we get into this passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you have said to us so far from these early chapters of Zechariah. Uh, Please continue in grace to speak to us now for our encouragement and for our correction and our instruction uh, and ultimately for our eternal good and your glory. Amen. Well, one of our biggest obsessions today is tomorrow, the future. We're really very interested to know uh, what is going to happen in any number of contexts in the future. Uh, There is that staple of our conversation, the weather forecast. Uh, We we talk about it every day. Uh, What does the future hold with the weather? There's uh, financial forecasting in the whole world of investments and stocks and shares. And of course, there's sports punditry, uh, looking ahead to the next big game, the next big tournament, uh, trying to figure out how the teams will line up, who will triumph, and who's going to make it uh, to the semi-finals of the Heineken. Never mind. Um, or maybe you remember the, the you maybe remember the Back to the Future films. Uh, we're not, actually now a few years past the date to which Marty McFly travelled from 1985, and it sparked a bit of a flurry of articles at the time discussing what aspects of current life today uh, and technology today had been accurately predicted by uh, that second film. I'm still waiting for that pink hoverboard. Uh, I think we all are, aren't we? Um, We love to think about the future, but we also worry about the future. Uh, We worry about the size of our pension, about the state of our health, about the people we love. Uh, Sometimes we even worry about spiritual things. Will I be able to run the race as a Christian? Will God really accept me? What will become of me? What will become of us? Uh, What will happen with um, changes in the law in this country and how will they affect us as Christians? Will will my loved one or my friend ever uh, come to know and love Jesus? How will it all turn out in the end? How will it all turn out in the end? Uh, What about our culture? As we think about the unshakable kingdom, with with Christianity on the ropes, uh, some Christians are running around these days like chicken licking, uh, shouting that the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Um, that was chicken licking, wasn't it? It wasn't Henny Penny. Uh, tell me after. Henny Penny was the one with the bread, wasn't she? Doesn't matter. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? What, what do you think is going to happen to the church in the UK and Ireland over the next 50 years? What, what will the church look like in 50 years? What will your church look like in 50 years? I think we have three pretty common fears as Christians. Uh, some Christians fear the church is going to become extinct. Some fear it will become corrupt. And some fear it will become irrelevant. 
I want to think about those for just a minute before we tuck into Zechariah. But those of us who fear extinction are often very concerned by our culture's rejection of biblical values. And so we decide we need to convert culture. Uh, we need to make alliances with politicians uh, on the conservative right. Really anyone who kind of roughly aligns with what we think and our side in the culture wars. Whether it's the DUP or even someone as morally bankrupt as Donald Trump. There, I said it. It's the last night and you're already here. Um, we're terrified that the church is going to become extinct. Now, it's right to want God's ways to influence our culture. Uh, but politics doesn't build the kingdom of God. And it doesn't save people. And it doesn't preserve the church. Those of us who fear corruption are most concerned by the pollution of the church by the culture, and so we decide we need to condemn culture. We do that in all sorts of ways, uh, often by withdrawing from it. Let's just get rid of the TV. Uh, we'll never play with the devil's cards. Maybe that's a, a different generation from mine. But, uh, or we stay away from non-Christian people. We don't want to mix too much. don't want to form those close friendships with non-Christians at work. Uh, sometimes even... Uh, we might live in Christian communities like, um, like the monasteries of our day or, uh, or some Anabaptist groups. And it's right, of course, to pursue holiness and to be careful about culture's influence on us. And maybe we have more to learn in that direction. But even the Israelites in exile were told to seek the good of Babylon. And it's hard to be salt and light if we live in a sealed container. And those of us who fear irrelevance are most concerned by the progress of culture compared to what we see as the stagnation of the church. And so we decide we need to consume culture. If historical Christian teaching doesn't fit with current trends, we need to change our teaching to stay relevant. Now, it's good to understand the world around us so that we can speak the age-old gospel uh, as clearly as we can in ways that help people to see that the gospel is the answer that the world needs. But if we lose that distinctive gospel, then the church stops being the church and just becomes, dare I say, a, a pretty pathetic version of the culture around it. The, the real irony is that trying to stay relevant is one of the fastest ways to make our churches completely irrelevant. What do you think is going to happen to the church in the UK and Ireland over the next 50 years? I, I don't know. Uh, but whatever our fears, the answer is not in uh, converting culture, not in the culture wars. It's not in condemning culture, withdrawing ourselves. And it's not in consuming culture, changing the gospel. The answer surely is courage in our culture. Courage in our culture. Courage to obey the Lord, to live for him, and to do the things that he would have us do. Well, how better to stoke the fires of our courage tonight than to look to the future, the future that God has allowed us to glimpse for that purpose so that we might have courage and good hope. All of these same questions faced the people of Zechariah's day. They are a sorry remainder of God's once great nation. At this point, they've been back in Jerusalem for about 18 years after God's punishment of exile a thousand miles away in Babylon. And life is hard. They might be back, but the glory days certainly are not. Jerusalem is still a wreck. Uh, the temple's not even half rebuilt, and the people all around are none too pleased that they've come back into the neighborhood. What are they going to do now? 
What are their fears? Do they fear extinction and push back politically, even forcefully, against these godless people around them? Do they fear corruption, uh, the same infiltration of sin into their society that led them into exile in the first place, and so withdraw, just build the city wall and, and, and make a holy huddle and quietly condemn the culture? Or do they fear irrelevance, the concern by the many differences between them and people around them, and how will they ever uh, make those bridges and those links and so consume culture? Well, I don't think we expect them to do that one, but... Uh, No, they need courage in the face of culture, as we do. And to stoke the fires of courage, uh, God gives this glimpse of the future through these eight visions of Zechariah. How will it turn out in the end? Well, there will be a happy ever after. We've covered five visions so far over these two nights, and we'll give a a little bit of revision uh, tonight as we go through. Uh, And we've been seeing that God will comfort his people. He'll dwell with them. He's going to judge their enemies fully and finally uh, when Jesus comes again. We've seen that uh, he will achieve this in a new and lasting way, this uh, unshakable kingdom, by removing their sin and establishing true worship so that they can burn brightly for him. That was that was last night, the two visions in the, at the heart of all of this. Tonight, we join these returnees. We're looking towards the future. And the first thing we see is that God will purge the wicked and exile sin for good. God will purge the wicked and exile sin for good. It's not necessarily what I would have chosen to talk about with you, but it is the message of the sixth and seventh visions that make up Zechariah chapter 5. So if you've got that open, page 952, I think it was, of the the, the church Bibles at least, uh, and look at verse 1. I looked again, says Zechariah, and there before me was a flying scroll. What's that? Well, verse uh, 3, he said to me, uh, the angel, this is the curse that is going out over the whole land. So this double-sided, unfurled scroll, like some sort of giant hovering broadsheet newspaper is God's curse against sin that that flies out through the land, throughout God's people. And verses 3 and 4, this scroll is looking for everyone who steals and everyone who swears falsely by God's name. Now, this curse is not so much the Genesis 3 curse against sin. It's more the covenant curse. Well, what's that? (laughs) Well, uh, long before God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he gathered them at Mount Sinai in the desert, and he made a covenant with them. When we think of the word uh, covenant today, um, well, maybe Presbyterians are stronger in this than Baptists, but when Baptists think of it, all we've got is a marriage covenant. <laughs> That's not quite true, but let's not get into it. Uh, it's, a, it's a joyous agreement, a marriage covenant, uh, and a solemn commitment for the relationship going forward. And it's the same for the covenant between God and his people. It's a joyous agreement and a solemn commitment for the relationship moving forward. And God's covenant with the people then contained promises of great blessing for their obedience, but also curses for disobedience. And I think this vision is designed to remind them of that. Two sides of the scroll dealing with two wronged parties Uh, So stealing is against other people, swearing falsely is against God. Uh, Two sides, two wrong parties, reflecting two halves of the Ten Commandments, one half about relating to God, the other half about relating to other people. Uh, There were even two stone tablets, weren't there, for the Ten Commandments. This scroll is the curse for disobeying God's covenant law. 
And verse 3, those who disobey will eventually be banished or purged, perhaps more literally cleaned out. I don't know if any of you uh, like to go fishing. If you go and catch a trout or something and you bring it home to eat it, it's, it's got to be cleaned out. You can slice along the belly and scoop out the smelly. Uh, it's not, not a nice job, and since my father's in the room, I better admit it's not a job that I ever had to do. Uh, but it's an important job if you want to enjoy the meal. Uh, there are things in there that you don't, uh, don't want to eat. Uh, or say you get an infection somewhere in your body. Sometimes antibiotics don't really clear it out, and you've got to get the infection cleaned somehow. Or a cancerous tumor. There's not an illustration I use lightly, but if it's possible, you need that to be cleaned out. Uh, it's a life and death scenario. It might sound a bit harsh on these people being banished or purged or cleaned out, but these are settled and persistent enemies of God and of the covenant. And these returned exiles have lived through the consequences of, of God's people settling down with sin. Well, we don't want anyone to come under God's terrible judgment, so we feel a little bit torn on this topic, especially because of unbelievers that we know and, and love. Uh, but we need to remember that it's great news in the end that God will judge the wicked, uh, those who are opposed to him, especially from within his own people, because only then will his rescued people be in full and permanent remission. And, and verse 4, this curse also consumes the houses of God's enemies. Uh, back in 2013, uh, there's a chap called Ariel Castro and he was found to have kidnapped three girls and held them captive in his house in Cleveland, uh, in Ohio, for about 10 years. The conditions were appalling. Uh, the abuse was sickening. And when he was convicted, his victims and neighbors came together uh, and were given permission to demolish the house where all this had happened. He'd long since gone to prison, of course, but they wanted to demolish the house. And they did it. They tore it down. And doesn't that feel fitting to us? Doesn't that sound right? Of course it does. Well, verse 4, even the houses of the wicked will be torn down. It's actually the only fitting thing to do. That's vision 6, and we'll try and apply it in a moment. But let's keep going with vision 7. Something else appears in verse 5. Uh, what is it? Well, verse 6, it's a basket. The angel replied, it's a measuring basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. The, uh, the lid is uh, deliberately very heavy. It's not your standard picnic basket. It's made of lead. And inside, to our surprise, is a, a woman who personifies wickedness, verse 8. It seems like she tries to escape, but she's pushed back down and the lid is closed. And then two more women appear, uh, winged women, with the wind like the breath or spirit of God himself lifting them. That's the, that's the picture. And I think if you're familiar with the description of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the box containing God's law and symbolizing God's presence with winged creatures on the lid, I think this basket is basically the anti-Ark, the opposite of godliness and the opposite of the presence of God. And these two winged women carry wickedness away. Verse 10, away where? Verse 11, to the country of Babylonia to build a house or alternatively, a temple for it. And when it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. And the, 
The, the notion there is that it's going to sit on a pedestal where wickedness will be idolized. Babylonia is where the Tower of Babel was built in Genesis 11, where the, the people decided to build a tower to reach up to heaven. They didn't need God because they were unstoppable. It's where the Babylonian Empire formed and grew and took over the world. The Babylonians used to say that no God could stand in their way. They were unstoppable. It's the place where Zechariah's listeners have just been in exile. It's the symbolic and at times literal center of human pride, human evil, and human rebellion against God. So wickedness itself is going to be exiled to the place of wickedness. This all might seem a little bit alien to us, but here's a way to remember uh, what this vision is about. Here's a, a modern basket of wickedness. Uh, and uh, spent nuclear fuel rods uh, in a basket of steel and lead. And it's going to uh, a special house. It's going to a special place uh, where toxic material can be stored indefinitely, a, a vast underground repository far away from people and animals and water sources and, and all of that. Well, just like hazardous waste, wickedness and evil and sin which are so toxic to us and to our relationship with God they're going to be dumped not poured out but housed in a special repository in Babylon God's people have just come back from being exiled there but now God is going to exile wickedness itself the sin that took God's people into exile will itself be removed and permanently exiled so two visions, number six and seven, telling us that God will purge the wicked and, and exile sin for good. Now we are uh, waiting for this to happen. Bible prophecies are often fulfilled in different ways at different times. They're often fulfilled somehow in history and then somehow in Jesus and somehow in the church and then ultimately in uh, the new creation. Well, there's no question over whether this has happened yet. It, it hasn't, but it will. God will clean out. He will purge the wicked. And he will permanently exile wickedness itself. That's God's program. That's God's agenda. God will purge the wicked and exile sin for good. And perhaps that leaves even some of us here tonight in severe danger. Danger of God's curse of judgment cleaning us out, cutting us away like a tumor, taking us to permanent exile from him and from everything good. But there is an escape route open, and that is Jesus Christ. He was taken out of Jerusalem on Good Friday. He was exiled. He was cut off from God. He was rejected under the dark sky of divine judgment, all so that you don't have to be. That's what's happening on the cross. Jesus is exiled, carrying sin into exile. If you ask him, he can clean out your sin. He can cleanse you before it's too late. He removes it completely at the cross. Ask him. And if he's done that for you, then, well, two things. First of all, rejoice. Think about this, the toxic waste of your sin, that terminal cancerous tumor has been removed 
banished, exiled. It's gone. It's completely forgiven. And when we face God, there won't be a trace of sin left. Not a single cancerous cell of it. Not a single blip on the Geiger counter of sin. Nothing. Completely clear. Completely clean. Let's rejoice. And second, let's get with the program. We're already free from the penalty of sin. We're not yet free from the presence of it. Although we will be. And so if you belong to Jesus, sin already now has no place. Fight it with all you've got. And rejoice that because of Jesus, we will one day be fully and forever cured. God will purge the wicked and exile sin for good. That's one of the answers to how it will all turn out in the end. That's the message of visions six and seven. So now for the last vision at number eight. How will it all turn out in the end? God's rule and rest will finally be established. God's rule and rest will finally be established. Here's our last vision. And in this vision, uh, four chariots drawn by four pairs of powerful horses emerge from between uh, two mountains of bronze. In uh, verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4, Zechariah asks his now fairly standard question, what are these, my Lord? (laughs) The answer, verse 5, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north country, the one with the white towards the west, the one with the dappled towards the south. Chariots were the uh, original armored personnel carriers, fast, flexible, and feared more than anything. And these chariots belong to the Lord of all the earth, and they're pretty fearsome, verse 7. You can get a picture of them in your mind. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. And so they went throughout the earth. And then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. The, uh, the Persians who, who ruled other nations in their own lands at home, didn't exile them, didn't displace them, but ruled them where they were, they patrolled their empire with horsemen. Here God sends out his chariots to patrol the whole earth, and they do it. They set God's spirit at rest, verse 8. In other words, they report back that God's peace is now established in the whole world. And in verse 8, it's like... God anticipates the question that Zechariah's listeners, these returned exiles, will have. They want to be sure, and they ask, even in the north country? You see, all the superpowers that have done so much damage to God's people have come from the north. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, all up and around the Arabian desert and down into Israel from the north. Will God's rule and rest even protect them in that side? Will it even be there? Verse 8 Yes, even there. And it's pretty clear, isn't it, that these returned exiles are not the ones who make this happen. They don't march out as an army. These chariots come from these two bronze mountains. I don't think we're that hot on ancient Jewish symbolism, but these Jews would surely have pictured the two huge bronze pillars at the front of Solomon's temple, the old temple. But that temple was destroyed. They're clearing the rubble of it at this point. Uh, they're, they're going to rebuild, and it's not even going to come close. It certainly isn't going to have bronze pillars. 
But that doesn't matter because these chariots of God's power are going to come not from the earthly temple, but from his heavenly house. Even Solomon's temple in the absolute glory days of Israel was just a model, uh, just a model of God's heavenly house from which his rule will come and his rest will finally be established. Life is hard for these returned exiles. It's not easy being God's people Uh, living out God's agenda. And I think we feel that too sometimes, don't we? We feel the weariness and worry of being Christians, the struggle against sin, the persistent doubts, the lack of spiritual get up and go, and just the sheer ordinariness of it all. I know that's not just me. The comedians and celebrities and the media chip, chip, chip away at our faith. Culture and politics drift from historic Christian influence. We want people that we know to become Christians, but we're scared to talk about Jesus. And at the same time, we're annoyed that we're scared and guilty about that. We're thrown off balance in our faith by illness and bereavement and lingering sin. We wonder how it's all going to turn out for us. The Bible is consistently clear about how it's going to turn out. God will purge the wicked. He'll exile sin for good. And his rule and rest will finally be established. Rest is one of those uh, big pictures the Bible uses for eternity. Uh, You know that feeling uh, when uh, you get into bed and you fall straight to sleep and you stay asleep all night and you wake up refreshed. No, I don't really either. But when God's spirit is at rest, we will be at rest too. That's how it's going to turn out in the end. Because that's God's word and God's promise. And he is faithful and he has all the power he needs to keep his promises. We will be at rest. Now, if you were here on Friday for visions one to three, you might have noticed that vision eight has a familiar ring to it. It's a lot like vision one with the horses and the patrolling and the reporting back. And that's a little clue because there's a pattern to these visions. Um, They form a set. They form a unit, a a whole. Uh, Together they are God's word to the people through Zechariah as a package. Uh, So what is the pattern? Well, uh, borrowing from uh, one of the commentaries to to try and draw it out for you. So uh, in vision one, I don't know if you can... Uh, Read that. But in vision one, God's horsemen patrol the earth and they report that the nations are at rest because God's enemies have crushed all opposition. And judgment on those nations is anticipated. That's vision one. In vision eight, God's horses and chariots patrol the earth again. Judgment on the nations is executed and God's rest is established. In visions uh, two and three, God returns to his people and a house is built for him in Jerusalem. In visions six and seven, sin departs from his people and a house is built for it in exile in Babylon. And all of of this is drawing us uh, to the middle two visions, visions four and five from last night. Now in our culture, we always put the, the climax of the story at the end. Uh, We build up to the finale. That's why the BBC will show you last night of the proms, a huge concert uh, with all the fireworks and the flags and the uh, Brexiteers and and all of that. Who ever heard of middle night of the proms? 
it just doesn't, it's not the way we work. We just don't think that way. Middle night of the proms, no. But in lots and lots of passages through the Bible, the key idea, the climax, the peak, is very often in the middle, uh, like a, a mountaintop there with the, the slopes on either side. And we're being drawn to the middle here, to visions four and five. Uh, there we focused on the two leaders of God's people in, in that day, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the royal governor, the king figure. And it's by God's spirit working through these two anointed servants that all of God's promises will be fulfilled, that sin will be removed and true worship established. And this end point of, of vision eight, uh, six, seven and eight uh, enabled. And we saw that these two anointed servants are symbols of another servant who will come, who will be both priest and king, Jesus Christ. We, we're seeing him here as the branch. Uh, that's what he's called in these visions. It's pointing us towards Jesus Christ. And that's where this first part of the book of Zechariah ends. How will it all turn out in the end? Last then for tonight. Uh, last really for our, our set. God's anointed servant will fulfill his promises. God's anointed servant will fulfill his promises. This is the second half of chapter 6. Uh, and now uh, the visions are over. And instead of being told to see something, Zechariah is now told to do something. So look at chapter 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Uh, not, the, not the destination we might have expected for that, priest, uh, that crown. We might have expected Zerubbabel. He's the guy in the line of David. He's the kind of king figure. Crowns are for kings. They're not for priests. The priest had a turban. Uh, but this is not a permanent thing because verse 14, the crown is going to be stored in the temple as a reminder. This crown is like a theater prop. It's a visual aid, and this coronation is symbolic. Uh, symbolic of what? Well, verse 12, tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. So this symbolic coronation ceremony for Joshua, the high priest, points us back to last night, to, the, to that mountain peak of these visions, the climax of it all in, in Numbers 4 and 5. Uh, visions 4 and 5 in chapters 3 and 4, confusingly. Uh, it points us to the Messiah figure of these visions called the branch. A branch in the family tree of King David. A, a king and yet also somehow a priest. There'll be harmony between the two. And from those central visions we covered last night, we've already realized this is about Jesus. Jesus, the priest who offers himself for our sins to make peace between us and God. Jesus, the king who reigns over the whole world. Jesus, who in his body replaces the earthly temple, the temple these people are building, the temple that God has promised will be completed by Zerubbabel. Jesus, who, verse 15, gathers those who are far off, 
referring initially to those exiles yet to return to Jerusalem, represented by these new names here, Heldai and the other two, but referring ultimately to the nations who will be gathered and grafted in to form God's forever people, the church. How will it all turn out in the end? This is how Jesus came. He removed our sin in a single day, vision four. He established true worship, pouring out his spirit, vision five. He established those foundations for God's unshakable kingdom. The the, the only way that we can belong to it, if he clears our sin and puts his spirit in us. He is the true priest, the true king, uh, the true temple, and he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's how it will turn out in the end. And if that's the end, what about now? The first part of Zechariah uh, here at the end of chapter 6 finishes with God's solid promise. This is verse 15. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Maybe that sounds like it puts everything in doubt. Does it depend on us? Well, no, it doesn't. God's promises are always kept, but they do require a response. Vision 6 showed us what happens to the disobedient. They're, they're banished, banished uh, purged, cleaned out. We need to respond to God's promises. We need to believe them and live by them. And he works that in us. He enables all who are his to believe his promises and live by them. So, That's what we do when we're worried about tomorrow, when we're worried about our church over the next 50 years, when we're worried about how it will all turn out in the end. We believe his promises and live by them. As we said at the start, we live with courage in the face of culture. Courage to believe his promises and live by them. And I think with that, we've really come back to what uh, arguably is the main melody of the whole book It was chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me, and I will return to you. Return to relationship with God through the Lord Jesus. Return from sin. Return from spiritual dryness. Return to covenant relationship and obedience to him. And return with joy, because God will exile sin for good. Return with hope. Because God's rule and rest will finally be established. And return with all confidence because God's anointed servant, our Lord Jesus, has fulfilled, is fulfilling, and will fulfill all of his promises. Friends, let's take courage to trust his promises and live by them. Let's pray for his help. Father, you know us, you know what keeps us awake at night, you know our worries and concerns about the future, and Father, we confess that we are often slow to trust you, slow to rely on you, slow to believe that you are faithful enough and powerful enough and good enough to fulfill your promises to us. Father, would you forgive us for that? It should and would be enough for us to believe your promises simply because you've made them, you've given your word. Well, how much more should we believe your promises when we remember the Lord Jesus, your anointed servant, our priest and our king, the one in whom all of your promises to us 
find their yes and amen. Help us, Father, we pray, to trust you more and more each day and to live lives that reflect that trust. Help us not to worry about the future, but to believe your promises and live by them. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.